Excuse six. I'm terrified of failure. Eight hundred and fifty thousand people watched me fail. Let's go ahead and start right there, because I know for many of you, the idea of falling short in front of even a small group of witnesses is terrifying. Eight hundred fifty thousand. They watched me set a goal, publicly talk about how much I wanted it, and then they saw the aftermath when it didn't happen. It went down like this. Like most red-blooded American authors, I have long dreamed of writing a New York Times bestseller. For those of you who aren't familiar with this mythical distinction, making it onto this list is basically the unicorn of the publishing world. I think at one time it was all dependent on book sales, but somewhere along the way it became more nebulous. It seems nobody, save the people who work there, can tell you exactly how you get on it. It has to do with sales and press and buzz, and I assume some form of ritual sacrifice. My last book, Girl Wash Your Face, was my sixth one to go out into the world, and I knew it would have the best chance of making it onto the list. It's worth saying real quick that I fully understand that a random list doesn't determine my books or my own worth. In fact, to some people, it might be a ridiculous target to aim for. After all, it's about the work. It's about the women who loved it. It's about the gift of having your writing in book form in the first place. But we all have dreams we hold close to our hearts. We all have hopes that really only make sense to us. Becoming a New York Times bestselling author was mine. It had been my birthday candle wish for the last fifteen years. It's what ran through my head when I wished upon a star or blew dandelion seeds into the wind. If forced to give you a rationale behind it, I suppose it's because it would feel validating. My entrance into the publishing world wasn't exactly smooth, and even though my fan base has grown with every subsequent release, I guess there's a part of me that would love acknowledgement. Like, hey, the publishing community is sorry about the complex it gave you when it told you no one would ever buy your book. J.K., you're actually a decent writer. So anyway, I dreamed about it for years, but never admitted it to anyone because I didn't want anyone to know, lest they judge me for not making it. But this time around, I decided to bring everyone in on the dream. I decided to tell my online audience at the time, eight hundred and fifty thousand women all over the world, about this lifelong hope of mine. I figured if it did happen, then they would share in the victory. After all, they're the ones who support me. And if it didn't happen, well, it would certainly be a lesson for us all. The thing is, as a public figure, you're never supposed to call your shot. If you just keep your hopes and dreams locked up inside your mind or within a small trusted circle, then no one will be let down by your failures because they didn't know what the goal was in the first place. This tactic also means that the public can be surprised and delighted by any success you have. They never know what you're working on, so any achievement feels like a happy little coincidence. Fate smiling down on you again. 
the issue for me with this way of thinking is that it feels disingenuous. It feels like faking. Here I am telling you to be courageous and brave and to do big things and dare to reach for something mighty. Here I am telling you that failure doesn't matter and other people's opinions are none of your business. But then simultaneously, I'm just going to keep all of my big hopes close to the vest? That feels hypocritical. I strive to tell you guys about everything I'm going through or have gone through because I don't think it serves any of us to pretend. So with Girl Wash Your Face, I did the thing an author is never supposed to do. I called my shot. Four months before the release of the book, I told everyone, and by everyone, I mean you guys who follow me on social media, that I have always dreamed of being a New York Times bestselling author. This was my sixth book, and I had had years of dreaming about this, and so I talked about it a lot. It became a rallying cry for women all over the world. Not only was it my dream, but many of you got fired up on my behalf. You dreamed my dream right along with me. Then came the fateful day. It was Valentine's Day, exactly a week after the book came out, and unfortunately for him, it was also my husband's birthday. That afternoon, I found out my wish hadn't come true. Girl, Wash Your Face didn't make the New York Times bestseller list. I felt so sad, and honestly, I felt embarrassed. I felt like I'd ask my tribe to buy into something that then I couldn't deliver. It was crushing. I cried like a baby, and I spent a few days in the dumps. But I came to a conclusion pretty quickly. And even with all the sadness and embarrassment, I wouldn't take my goal back. I go on social media every single day and tell other women to follow their dreams. I wake up and do live streams and tell you that your goals are important and worth chasing. I write over and over again that failure is a part of life. Failure means that you're living. Failure means that you're trying. So what kind of friend would I be if I didn't practice that in my own life? I had called my shot voiced my big, crazy, audacious dream. I had told 850,000 people I was aiming for something, and they had all watched me fail. But here's the truth. If you aim at what you can hit, you'll likely get there every time. Never any higher, never any bigger, never any better. But... If you aim far above your own head, even when you fail, you'll fly so much higher than you can imagine. I would rather fly. I would rather dream. I would rather fall on my face over and over again. I will continue to tell you what I'm aiming at because I hope that if you watch me fall publicly and stand back up again and again and keep going, then you'll think, What if for yourself? What if you sign up for a marathon? What if you go back to school? What if you start that bakery? What if you quit your job? What if you take up hip-hop dancing? What if you go into ministry? What if you write a book? What if you start a podcast?
You have dreams. I know you do. And I also know that many of you hold back because you're afraid that others will see you stumble. Let them watch. Let them see what grit looks like. Let them see the mistake. Let them watch the missteps. Let them see you dust yourself off again and again and again and keep going. Do you know how many times I have failed as I've built my business and pursued my dreams over the last 14 years? I'm sure most of you won't remember, but I will never forget each and every lesson I learned along the way. What does it take to get back up when you've been knocked down? As an entrepreneur, I've been knocked down or tripped up by my own fumbling again and again. When I was younger, I imagined that at some point I'd gain enough experience to avoid failure altogether. Bless my tiny business baby heart. This level of success only makes my failures much more public and much larger in scale. Remember that time I launched the Chic site in Italy? Remember that time an employee stole money from me and I had no idea? Remember when I decided to be a florist as well as a wedding planner? Remember when I added on luxury gift baskets too? Nobody wanted the flowers or the gift baskets, in case you're wondering. My list of failures is miles long. I'm totally aware of how much time and money they cost me along the way. But here's the deal. Every single one of those mistakes has taught me something to ensure they don't happen again. Knowing something great can be mined from the ashes means I don't beat myself up when I don't get it right. It means I stand back up quicker, more determined than ever. A mistake that you learn from is how you build best practices. It's only truly a failure when you're so afraid to look at it that you can't move forward. If you can't move forward, you will never, ever make it across the finish line. Ten weeks after the book came out, the impossible happened. Or maybe not impossible, but unbelievable to me. Girl, Wash Your Face became a New York Times bestseller. I can tell you that when the publisher called to let me know, I literally fell to my knees. I was so stunned. I called Dave at work. I made his assistant pull him out of a meeting. I made the list, I whispered when he called me back. His screams and cheers broke whatever dam I had up when I found out. I cried like a baby. That night, we went home and had a drink we'd been planning for a decade. Ten years earlier, someone had given us a very expensive bottle of Dom Perignon. The bottle was so fancy, I felt like we should reserve it for something special. At the time, I thought of the biggest, loftiest dream I could imagine, and I labeled that bottle with my goal. New York Times bestseller scrawled across a piece of tape and stuck to the neck. For ten years, it sat in our fridge. It moved from our first townhouse to the little fixer-upper to the home I wrote all of my books in. The bottle was covered in dust and had been shoved to the back of cabinets, spending half a decade in the crisper of our beer fridge. And here's the crazy thing. I labeled that bottle back before I'd ever written a single page of a book. I labeled that bottle half a decade before my first book was published. 
I had dreamed of being a bestseller since I was 11 years old. I had imagined what it would be like to celebrate by opening that bottle for a decade. That night, after 10 years of waiting, we drank that champagne, and it was so much sweeter because of all the years from there to here. It was so much better because I had failed again and again on the quest for this goal. And if I hadn't been willing to put myself out there, if I hadn't been willing to let the public see me fail in a hundred different ways over the years leading up to this moment, I would never have achieved any of it. I am so grateful I was a failure. I'm so grateful it's taken me 14 years of mistakes to get to this place in my career. I'm so grateful that each book I've written has done a little bit better than the last, but not one of them has been an overnight success. My writing career, much like my entrepreneurial career, is a snowball rolling downhill. It's only recently that the mass has picked up enough speed to make the ground shake. I'm grateful for the small spaces I've inhabited. They taught me how to grow. I'm grateful for every misstep along the way. They taught me how to run. I'm grateful for every moment of insecurity. They propelled me to gain a lifetime of confidence earned through practice and study. Had any of it happened quickly or easily, I might have associated the wins with luck or innate skill. Battling through hardship to get here means I have absolute certainty in this truth. I can achieve anything if I'm willing to work for it. Not because I'm especially gifted, but because I'm especially dedicated to improving along the way. Sis, don't be afraid of failure. Be afraid of never achieving anything at all because you were too afraid of what others might think of you for trying. Excuse 7. It's been done before. It's one of those things we all do, right? We look at her life or her work or her Instagram, and we let her success talk us out of chasing anything for ourselves. We stop ourselves from writing that book, opening that business, building that app, starting that nonprofit, because someone else has already done it. It's been done before. Well, of course it has. But sister, everything has been done before. Kissing, dating, getting married, winged eyeliner, white jeans, bangs. Honestly, everything that sounds interesting or cool or like something you might want to try, it's already been done. So why is it that we don't let that deter us in any other scenario except pursuing something big? Because we need an excuse. Please note, I didn't call this section of the book legitimate obstacles to get around. I called it excuses to let go of. The fact that someone has already done the thing you're dreaming of shouldn't be a deterrent. It should be a sign that you're on to something. Dang, look at Susie already making rainbow doilies on Etsy. That just proves that it's fulfilling and fun to make and sell crafts online. What's that? Your cousin Emily is already killing it in that direct sales jewelry company? 
Oh, I guess that means it really is an incredible place to build community and a side income. But instead of seeing other people's success or creativity as a good thing, as a sign that pursuing something more for your life has value, you decide that it's a competition and you'd rather not try at all in case you're not as good as she is. Sure. This is partly about feeling like you're not enough, but it's also about the unhealthy game of comparison. One of the messages I get all the time from women is, I loved your book and I'd love to be an author, but I could never write like you do. Or, I've always wanted to do public speaking, but I'm not as good as you are. Girls, stop comparing your beginning with my middle or anyone else's for that matter. What you are listening to right now is my eighth book. And I'm not saying it's Pulitzer material, but it's light years away from my first in terms of skill. Have you ever looked at my Instagram feed and thought it was pretty? Scroll back a couple of years just for funsies and see what it looked like when I was just figuring out my personal style or how to not look like a robot in photos. Go look at the blog too. Some of those original posts are doozies. You think I'm a good public speaker? Please go peep on my old YouTube videos where I'm speaking at MOPS groups and at the local senior citizen's home. I kid you not. I intentionally keep the older content in my feeds and on my website because if you ever fall down an internet rabbit hole some night and find some of my original work, I want you to see the progress. I did not wake up like this. And that person you're comparing yourself to, neither did they. You stop yourself from trying because you think it's already been done. Well, of course it has, but it hasn't been done by you. There's a great Chinese proverb that says, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. You can keep talking yourself out of the things you're hoping for, or you can decide that your dream is more powerful than your excuse. This isn't a question of whether you can do something well, because nearly anything can be learned. This is a question of whether you're humble enough to suck for as long as it takes you to become better. The ability to write well, or speak well, or do photography, or dance, or any old thing at all, those are learned and improved over time. But you're never going to get to the place where you become good or better or best if you won't even put your shoes on the starting blocks. We don't know whether you can speak like me, or write like Brene Brown, or take pictures like Jenna Kutcher. Sister, we can't determine when you'll cross the finish line because you won't even let yourself show up for the race. You are talking yourself out of something you haven't even attempted because you think you can't measure up to how someone else has done it. But this particular excuse is not about your skill. This excuse is about your fear. There are all sorts of different ways this type of fear manifests. So please feel free to identify with the one that describes you best and allow me to drop some truth bombs up in here.
You're afraid that you'll suck because you've never done it before. Let me relieve you of this fear right now. You are going to suck. All beginners do. Because if you were secretly a prodigy at pursuing the dreams of your heart, some long-suffering yet dedicated teacher would have seen it in you long ago. We all saw dangerous minds. If Michelle Pfeiffer didn't see potential in you by now, you're not going to be perfect right out of the gate. Huzzah! There's zero pressure to be perfect now, so you can just have fun and get better. Your potential for improvement is exponential. You're afraid that you'll suck because you fail at everything, so why should this be any different? God's almighty nightgown. Is this really how you speak to yourself? Like, really? Number one, knock it off. You are beautiful and worthy of good things. And if you don't believe that, nobody will. Number two, go get my last book and read about the lies that are hurting you. This kind of belief is crushing and untrue. You have to begin with the way you speak to yourself and the things you believe you deserve before you attempt a new goal. First, learn to love yourself well and give yourself credit. Then reach for more. You're afraid that you suck, and at least if you never try, no one, especially you, will be able to confirm that. Spoiler alert, this kind of thought doesn't come from an underachiever who's not good at anything. This kind of thought comes from a perfectionist. And truthfully, it's lame. There is so much incredible potential inside of you, but you're going to squander it because trying may or may not confirm that you're not as good as you thought you were. Stop being so hard on yourself. It's like that time on Saved by the Bell when Jessie succumbed to the pressures of schoolwork and being in her band Hot Sunday. Spana was a perfectionist. But rather than admit that it was too much to keep up with it all or concede failure, she got addicted to drugs and had that now infamous breakdown to a Pointer Sisters song, Don't Be Jesse Spano. If you try for your goal, you probably will suck for a minute. Remember the part about sucking as a beginner? But you won't stay there for long. You'll work to get better and you won't even need caffeine pills to do it. Look. Here's the irony about this particular excuse. Even if you push yourself to confront it, you will keep encountering it for the rest of your life. When we're early on the path to personal growth or on the way to achieving a goal, we often have unrealistic expectations of what will happen once we get there. Like, if you just have the courage to do this one thing, then it will make you invincible to insecurity and indecision for the rest of your life. The reality is that every new mountain you attempt to scale will likely have been traversed by someone before you. Every new mountain. That means that once you get over this big goal in front of you, once you get to the summit, I'm really going all in on this analogy, guys, you'll see another mountain range in the distance. In fact, you'll realize that your mountain was actually just the foothill of something bigger and better. Personal goals are infinite, 
and addictive. Once you achieve one, it makes you start to wonder what else you might be capable of. The answer? Anything you set your mind to. But first, you've got to get over this battle with comparison. Because friend, if you can't get over your fear of not doing it as well as they do, you'll never have the opportunity to be a trailblazer for someone else. As I work through edits on this book, I'm in the process of creating something that many, many people have done before me. I also have exactly zero qualifications to take on something this massive. About a month from now, a documentary that we made about my women's conference will be in movie theaters throughout North America. I mean, who in the actual heck do I think I am? Well, I'll tell you who I am not. I'm not a filmmaker or a movie industry insider, and when we started on this project, I had no idea how we would pull it off. It's the biggest thing we've ever attempted to do, and it will live in a space in theater events and later streaming services that are insanely oversaturated. Not only that, but there are people who are experts in this field, and sometimes even they fail at it. So what in the world makes me think we have a shot? Well, frankly, the project being successful wasn't what made me want to do it. In fact, I believe if I had focused on whether or not it would make money, I would have started to obsess over all the ways I was ill-qualified to take it on. Actually, what motivated me to try and work on something so outside my wheelhouse was, well, you. As we were planning our conference last year, I received thousands of emails and direct messages from women saying how badly they wanted to attend RISE and how much it would mean for their hearts to have the opportunity to be in our audience. The problem wasn't their desire to attend. The problem was their finances. It's expensive to attend a conference because of travel and hotels and the price of tickets required to cover the cost of renting out a space so large. Many women didn't have it in their budgets, and I took that to heart. For nearly a decade, I've been creating content and giving it away for free. And the idea that you might not be able to access something I believe in so passionately really hurt my heart. I spent months trying to figure out a way to bring the conference and the power of reaching for personal growth to women at a price they could afford. Then one day, on a random conference call, I heard about event cinema, which is a fancy term for putting a live event, like the ballet or a Justin Bieber concert, into movie theaters on a limited run. Dang it, I thought. If the Biebs can do this, I'm pretty sure I can do this. I asked myself a what-if question. What if we made a movie about Rise Weekend? What if I could find someone to partner with us to help get it into theaters? What if I could give the tribe the chance to create a girls' night out in their own community? I hope you can understand how insane this idea was. We didn't know how to make a movie or how to get it in theaters or literally hundreds of steps between there and here. We were the worst kind of dumb. We didn't know what we didn't know. But... I didn't spend any time worrying about our lack of knowledge, and honestly, it didn't occur to me to care about who had done it better or how it might be received. I wasn't focused outside myself. I was focused on my why. 
My why was powerful. My why made me feel passionate enough to figure out my how. If you find yourself worried about the idea that someone else has already done it, you need to flip the script on whether that's a bad thing. If someone else has done it, you can research and model behavior and test out your own theories using their roadmap as some kind of guidance. You can combine their how with your why to create something epic. Excuse 8. What will they think? I started boxing. And just so we're all clear on this, I don't mean boxing at the 24-hour fitness. There's nothing wrong with boxing at your local gym. I just want to make clear the distinction between performing boxing-style moves for cardio at your usual workout spot and going to a real-life boxing gym that's dirty and smelly and blasts Metallica like it's required for the sport. I've only been to a few sessions so far, so for all I know, it is required for the sport. My point is, I'm getting real training from someone whose job it is to teach actual fighters how to throw a punch. The gym I'm going to for this training isn't pretty by any stretch of the imagination. The workout is grueling, and I often feel like I'm going to die or puke up my breakfast smoothie all over the ring. I don't fit in. Imagine a dirty room full of minotaurs and then me, all five feet, two inches of me with my long, long extensions and my overly dramatic fake lashes. There I am, a 35-year-old mother of four, trying my darndest to slide away from punches lest my trainer knock me upside the head. I'm not exceptionally good at it. Though, truth be told, I've never seen any kind of boxing match, so I'm not totally sure what the end goal is supposed to be. So why do I do it? Why do I keep showing up to try something amongst people who are so much further along than I am? Why do I hang out in a room I don't fit in and keep attempting to learn something I'm not particularly skilled at, all while others watch and judge and draw their own conclusions? Because it makes me happy. I like throwing punches and working out to Jay-Z and flipping my hat around backward like a proper tomboy. I love boxing and I love pushing myself to try something new. Here's the kicker. I don't care what anyone else thinks about that. But maybe you heard that and think, okay, big deal. You're comfortable at your boxing gym. I don't know how that's supposed to help me find the courage to start a business as a wedding photographer. Well, how about this? There are two types of people in the world, non-judgmental people who aren't ever going to think badly of you for anything you do regardless of the outcome, and judgmental people who are jerks. These jerks are probably working through their own issues and will pray for them, but at the end of the day, judgmental people are going to judge you no matter what. If they're going to judge you either way, then you may as well go for it. You may as well live your life. You may as well be true to who you are and what you value and let go of how it will be received. On Mondays, my kids have karate. On other days, there is baseball practice and piano practice and then karate practice again. We might have an audition for the school musical. We might have a dine-out night to support the PTA. We might have play dates or dentist appointments or simply need to make the trip 
for the millionth time to get everyone's hair cut. There are so many things to keep up with when you have four kids, and I don't always remember them no matter how hard I try. Yesterday, the school called to tell me that Ford is the very last child out of all the incoming kindergartners who still needs to turn in his paperwork. You guys, I didn't even know what paperwork she was talking about. Which brings me back to karate practice. Karate practice takes two hours, not including drive time, while first my youngest and then my big boys try to work their way up to the next belt color. Those two hours happen during a weekday afternoon when I should technically be working. But I want the boys to have the opportunity to do something cool, to not be held back by my schedule, which is something that happens more often than not. So if I can make it work, I get off early and take them to practice. Then I sit down on the blue carpet amongst water bottles and flip-flops, and at some point, I open up my laptop and start working through emails or book edits that are due on Friday or the timeline for one of our live events. And inevitably, I start to get looks from the other parents. Now, maybe I'm being presumptuous. Maybe those looks are actually because they like my computer case or they think my hair looks especially good in that top knot today. But if I had to guess, I'd say their looks are more about the fact that I'm working when I should be wholly devoted to watching my kids master their front kick. Some insecure part of me, the one that used to worry quite a bit about what other mothers thought of my parenting style, considers putting the computer away. But then this is the trade-off, or maybe perk is a better word. So many working moms wish they could make it to practice even if it meant they were building a spreadsheet on Excel while their children karate chop the air to the Pokemon soundtrack. What a gift that I get to have that experience. So I don't put the laptop away. I remind myself that this is part of the deal, that these boys of mine will always know what hard work and dedication look like. I remind myself that someday when they're grown men, it will never occur to them that a woman can't start and build and run a successful company because that was always part of their reality. God willing, I'm the only mom my kids will ever know, and I honestly don't know any other way to make this all work for all of us without multitasking sometimes. So I refuse to teach them that you should pursue your dreams, but simultaneously be ashamed of them. If I don't want that for them as adults, I need to model that behavior for them now. I can't worry about what the other moms at practice think of me, and you can't worry about what the other moms or your in-laws or the PTA think of you. All you can do as a working mom is try your best. All you can do as a recent college grad is try your best. All you can do as a 50-something divorcee is try your best. All you can do at any stage and season of life is try your best. And someone else's opinion of how you're doing or what you're doing is none of your business. You know this, friends. I know you do. So why is it that your dreams are still hiding out in your heart instead of taking shape in your hands? It's not a fear of failure that keeps you in this place. It's a fear of what other people will think of your failure. O-P-O, other people's opinions. You down with it? Because if you are, 
You're giving all your power away. The opinion of the other moms at school, the opinion of the hulks in my boxing gym, the opinion of strangers on the internet or my parents or even my fans, the second I start to give inordinate weight to any of it is the second my priorities get out of alignment. When other people's expectations start to dictate your actions, you're lost. Your hope, your dreams, your sense of self, it all gets lost. You want to make real strides for yourself and your goals this year? Stop caring about what they think of you. Stop giving power to someone else's opinions. Inevitably, when I say something like this, the question that comes back is about accountability and whether we can truly maintain our integrity if we have no sounding board. First of all, you know what's right and wrong. You know what's true. Down in your gut, you know how the best version of yourself would live out this day, this life you've been given. You may not always get to that place, but you know what it is you're striving for. So don't underestimate that. Secondly, if you're truly blessed, you will have people in your life who are confidants and true friends. Their wisdom will be your counsel, and you can seek them out when you need to. But, and here's the place where people get tripped up, there is a big difference between wanting someone's opinion and needing their approval. The latter typically comes disguised as the former. We ask for an opinion because we're feeling unsure about something, and often if we can find someone to agree, we somehow justify the idea as good or bad. Yesterday, I made this mistake with my husband. He is my best friend and counselor, and I still had to separate his opinion from what I really wanted. I have this idea for a new book, a new fiction book. I haven't written fiction since I wrapped up my girl series, but as often happens when you're in the middle of writing a book, I started daydreaming about my next book. This happens partly because you're deep in a creative headspace and mostly because writing books, no matter how many you do, is super hard. Fantasizing about being finished and working on the next thing is the carrot you dangle to get you through big writing days. So this new novel, it's my carrot, and I got excited enough to tell Dave about it. And in doing so, I opened myself up for opinions. His opinion was that the plot sounded a lot like something else, and that it also sounded a little convoluted. He said it in the nicest way, truly just as a harmless thought as part of our little brainstorming session. The problem is not that he offered his opinion. The problem is that I immediately started to adjust my thoughts about the book. I immediately started to wonder if maybe he was right and my idea was wrong and I should just scrap it. But the truth is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if Dave is right. It doesn't matter if the experts are right. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks or believes. The idea, the dream, the goal is my own. The second I start looking for other people to validate it, I begin to lose steam and momentum. When you're in the early stages of an idea or a goal, you're the most insecure, which means you're easily swayed by what other people might think or believe. You're most easily talked out of an idea you might have loved or into an idea you might regret when you allow other people's opinions to color your plans. 
It's like when you ask someone to review or critique the first draft of your manuscript when you're only halfway done. When I ask someone to read an unfinished draft, it's because I'm looking for validation. It's usually because I'm struggling and thinking I'm a terrible writer, and I want someone whose opinion I admire to tell me to keep going. The truth is, no one else can validate you enough to finish a first draft. No one can validate you enough to follow through on the dream you've laid out for yourself. Even the most encouraging coach on the planet can't make you finish the race. You're going to have to find it in yourself to chase it down all on your own. But what's the harm, right? If you still finish it yourself in the end, why does it matter whether you look for someone else to validate your idea in the beginning? Because while other people can't help you finish, they can certainly, even if unintentionally, talk you out of trying. I wish I could just snap my fingers and make it so that you no longer felt trapped under the weight of other people's opinions and expectations, but I know it's not that easy. It's a hard habit to break, but make no mistake, it's a habit and a choice. We can choose to not allow that weight in our lives, but since we're all probably operating under some negative opinions, we also need to learn how to get out from under what is already there. And that starts with understanding exactly what kind of opinions we're dealing with. Here's the deal. There are two kinds of negative opinions, substantiated and hearsay. Substantiated means that you know for sure the negative opinion is there. Someone tells you the things they don't like about you, straight up to your face like a Drake song. Maybe they're family. Maybe they're friends. Maybe they're random strangers on the internet. These kinds of substantiated opinions are delivered two possible ways. Just follow me down this road. I promise we're going somewhere. The first possible presentation of a negative opinion is thoughtful and kind. It's given to you by someone who cares about you, and they're concerned about a choice that you're making. But even when their heart is in the right place— there's a lot of nuance here. Is this really about you? Or is their concern grounded in their perception that what you're doing is wrong? Remember our conversation about other people's perceptions of what's shameful. The other way you might possibly hear someone's negative opinion about you is in a hurtful way. This is when whoever is offering the opinion, family member, friend, stranger, doesn't come with the intent to offer constructive feedback or to help you get better or to show you true concern. Their intent is to tease you and belittle you at best or tear you down and hurt you at worst. Either way, ain't nobody got time for that. This person's behavior does not have a place in your life. Let me say it again. This behavior doesn't have a place in your life. I don't care if it's coming from your sister or your mom or your boyfriend. Nobody deserves verbal and mental abuse. And every time you allow it to happen, you're giving that person permission to treat you that way. You are not required to put up with it just because you always have. To recap, we've got two kinds of negative substantiated opinions. The first comes from a place of love. So you're going to be a grown-up 
and consider it, but not accept it as gospel truth unless it feels right to you. The second isn't meant to be helpful, but destructive, and therefore you should reject it. Reject it. Don't let it be considered, discussed, absorbed, or given one single particle of oxygen to help that fire spread. Any opinion not presented in love should not be considered, period. Which brings me to the second kind of negative opinion about you, the hearsay, the figment of your imagination. No matter how likely it may be, the negativity that you've made up all on your own. Eleanor Roosevelt told us that nobody could make us feel bad without our consent. I'm going to add to that. Be very careful you're not consenting to let your mind make you feel bad when nobody else actually did anything. What do I mean by that? Perhaps you're pretty sure your mother-in-law disapproves of you, or you're almost positive that your cousin Crystal's snarky comment on Facebook was aimed in your direction. Maybe you know for a fact that the girls you went to high school with, who you now know only through social media, would make fun of you if they saw you trying to do something new. In all of these instances, none of these negative opinions are actually substantiated. And therefore, you're really just sabotaging yourself. Nobody has said anything. Nobody has done anything. Maybe your new mother-in-law does disapprove of you. And maybe she just misses her son and feels anxious about how she'll fit into your life. Maybe your cousin Crystal was aiming that comment in your direction, but you and I both know that Crystal is the worst. She used to give you titty twisters. This is the person whose opinion you're going to worry about? The irony is, most of the time, nobody is actually thinking about you. Nobody actually cares what you're up to, and if they do... They're not judging you or making fun of you behind your back. It's not like you hang out with a bunch of ogres, right? And if they do dislike you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But more than that, assuming that someone thinks the worst of you when you have no real evidence to back that up isn't about them. It's about you. You're letting their opinion control your life. And you don't even know if they really have one. It's all in your own thoughts. You're just wrapping it up and blaming it on other people so you don't have to take responsibility. The truth is, it doesn't matter what they think of you. It matters what you think of you. Hard as it is to reconcile, someone else's opinion only holds power if you allow it to. If you actively take steps and intentionally begin to live without obsessing over what other people think, it will be the most freeing decision of your life. Excuse 9. Good girls don't hustle. I'm a hustler, baby. Jay-Z. Don't you hate it when an author starts a chapter with a quote? As a longtime book nerd, I have read approximately 70,000 novels, and the quote thing has always felt a little self-aggrandizing to me. Like, oh, just read this elegant prose from Tennyson and prepare yourself for a similar level of talent. 
It's even more annoying when the quote in question has literally nothing to do with the chapter you're reading. No thing. And you find yourself wondering, is this esoteric? Am I supposed to understand the correlation between a Whitman quote and this dragon shapeshifter love story? You would be shocked to know how many books about vampires falling in love with single moms or aliens falling in love with librarians start each chapter with a random quote. Yes, I read horrendously cheesy romance novels. Stop judging me. The point is, I hate chapters starting with quotes, but this chapter was the bonus in the last book. Shout out to all of you who snagged the Hustlers edition. And I loved it so much and felt like it was such an important topic that it gave me the idea to write this book. So we're going to start with the most iconic line on hustling I can think of, a Jay-Z lyric. A bonus chapter is like Equestria or a Kardashian birthday party. Anything can happen here. So I'm bringing in Jay-Z lyrics just for my gals who are chasing down a dream, who want something more, and aren't afraid of hard work and audacious goals. Let's talk about hustle. I have been an overachiever for as long as I can remember. I was a dreamer from the very beginning. I would imagine elaborate scenarios my future grown-up self would be part of. I knew what my mansion would look like, could foresee the vacations I'd take, the prince I'd marry, and the horses I'd own. Horses because, well, I was seven, and having my own horse was the ultimate fantasy. I was going to name her Calliope, and I'd only ride her wearing the special tan pants that rich, equestrian-inclined girls wore in Lifetime movies circa 1991. A little girl daydreaming isn't anything unique. But perhaps what was unique was I knew even then that I could achieve anything if I was willing to work for it. I don't remember anyone ever saying that to me. Maybe I just understood it through observation and osmosis. When you grow up in a home that struggles financially, it doesn't bother you until you're exposed to the opposite. I realized at a very young age that there were people who didn't live paycheck to paycheck, who didn't scream at each other over money, who could walk into Target and buy anything they wanted. I was 11 when my goals for my future solidified. My parents had broken up again. It happened so many times over the course of my life, I honestly cannot tell you what number it was that time. The difference in this particular instance was that my mom decided to move out, and she insisted I come with her. Nobody asked me what I wanted or gave me a say in the matter. They simply announced that it was happening. My three older siblings would stay with my dad in our family home, and I would move into a crappy apartment with my mom. It was one of the darker years of my childhood. I rarely had access to my siblings, and the financial strain of parents who were now dividing resources to pay for two places to live meant that we had even less than before. I have a photo from that time of my 11th birthday party with a handful of friends from school in this rundown, shabby apartment. I can remember being embarrassed. I remember the boxed cake mix baked in an old Pyrex. 
I remember that we couldn't afford decorations. I remember being hyper aware of two things. First, I didn't want the kind of life where I lacked the funds for special occasions. Second, it's not very convincing to assert your independence from my mother in this case if you don't have the financial means to back it up. I vowed to myself that day that I would be wealthy when I grew up. It was my birthday candle wish. I stood in that tiny dining room on stained carpet in front of the yard sale table and I promised myself something better. I will never live like this when I have the ability to prevent it. I was vehement in this. Someday, I would be rich. I'm not supposed to say that, I know. Social media is filled with hundreds of male CEOs and self-made entrepreneurs who tout the power of wealth and the justification for achieving it. But if you're a woman, it's frowned upon. It's impolite. It's not something good girls do. Good girls don't talk about money, and they certainly don't claim it as a life goal, regardless of their reasons why. What I learned in childhood, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. That meant I should be happy with whatever life handed me, gracious and thankful for whatever came my way. But what was coming my way as a child and later as a teenager was a mostly crappy existence. And because I was a child, I couldn't do anything to change it. But I knew after that birthday party that the second I was in control, I would never be forced to settle again. There is a big difference between gratitude for your life and blind acceptance of whatever comes your way. I wanted more. I wanted more than I had grown up with. I wanted more access. I wanted more experiences. I wanted more knowledge. I wanted more challenges. I wanted more influence. I wanted the ability to help others who were in difficult financial places because I knew exactly how they felt. I understood even then that monetary resources would make that possible. I wanted so many big, grandiose things. When I was a child, people thought it was adorable. They'd pat me on the head and tell me how precious it was. But in my early 20s, I quickly learned what was and wasn't acceptable to my family, friends, or husband. When I started my own company, everyone saluted my moxie. But two years later, when I was pregnant with my first child, people immediately asked when I would be quitting. The business, they concluded, was just this cute thing I was doing to keep myself busy until my real calling started, being a stay-at-home mom. It's worth stopping right here to qualify that statement. I sincerely believe there is no harder job and no more important job than being a stay-at-home mom. I have so much stinking respect for my stay-at-home mom friends, and I'm not for one second implying otherwise when I tell you that it's just not for me. Next to my husband, my children are my greatest blessings. But y'all, if I had to stay home with them full time, I'm not entirely sure any of us would survive. It's not my spiritual gifting. It's not in my wheelhouse. You know what is in my wheelhouse? Building a successful business, managing a team, writing books, 
giving keynote speeches, crushing it on social media, strategizing, branding, PR, and planning live events where a thousand women fly in from all over the world to be inspired. But at the time, none of those things were proven. I was still new to business. I only had an idea in my heart and a fire in my belly. I was figuring out how to run a business using books at the library and Google. I asked a 100,000 questions to anyone who could offer wisdom. It was slow going at first, but dude, I was going. I got my first client and I worked my butt off. I treated that one single client like they were the last opportunity I'd ever get. I didn't have money, I didn't have a ton of experience, but I did have an unmatchable work ethic and I let it shine. I got the next client based on a referral from that first one. I did events for basically nothing in order to build up my portfolio. I took on any client I could find. I was essentially like, do you have a pulse and need to plan a party? You do? I'm in. So when I got pregnant and had to explain my choices over and over again to well-intentioned family members, it honestly sucked. For the first time in my whole life, I understood that other people didn't agree with the life I'd imagined for myself. They didn't like the idea of a working mom, even though they'd accepted it early on when we needed the money. A couple of years later, when Dave's salary increased enough that it was clear I didn't have to work, the passive-aggressive people around me began to vocalize displeasure outright. Even when you're strong, even when you're committed to your goal, it's hard not to second-guess yourself or take on guilt when it's coming at you from every angle. Open disapproval wasn't enough to make me change my course, but I did stop claiming my course as my own. I wouldn't recognize it until years later, but those opinions began to wear me down. I was like a piece of glass that gets thrown into the ocean. Other people's opinions became my waves, their judgment the sand I was tossed against over and over until it began to chip away at all my jagged edges. I know that as a society, we tend to think that being smooth and pretty, everything worn off to a soft, rounded edge, is what we should aspire to. But the more I grow and learn and think about it, the more I understand that your jagged edges, the parts of you that stick out in odd directions and don't match everyone else, those are what make you uniquely you. My unique qualities? I am a leader. I am a teacher. I've built two successful companies through hard work and hustle and the wealth of knowledge that can be found from a Google search bar. My goal is simple, even if it's grandiose. I want women to understand that they have the power to change their lives. It's at the core of everything I do. It's the platform I've built everything else on, and I truly believe it's what I was put on this earth to do. I'm building a media empire around the idea. No, I did not misspeak. Yes, I just said a media empire. Not a company, not a side hustle, not a small business, an empire. The world tells me that good girls don't hustle, and they certainly don't stick a flag in the ground and audaciously shout that they want to be a media mogul. 
They for sure don't feel so passionately about it that they have the word mogul tattooed on their wrist. I know I'm not the only one who has ever bumped up against the expectations of others and then backed down because of them. In a desire to find community, I constantly seek out other women in leadership, and what I find again and again are women doing just what I did. They're downplaying all that they've achieved because they've been taught that it makes others feel uncomfortable. You guys, astounding women are doing this. Women who have built $100 million companies or are running massive teams with unbelievable revenues, those kinds of women are afraid to admit that they're good at their jobs or that they love what they do. Interacting with them has made me feel less alone, has made me understand that this is something many other women face down. So I'm telling you my story in the hopes that if you're like us, you know there's a tribe of ladies who feel the same way, even if not everyone has found the courage to say it out loud yet. It's okay to want something more for your life. In fact, Hang out with me long enough and you'll discover that it's one of the things I value most in people. Drive, hustle, the desire to work as hard as you can to chase down a goal. That's my jam. Hustle is my love language. I love a hustler. I love someone who is unabashed about what they want for their lives and refuses to let anyone talk them out of it. I don't mean that they never feel intimidated by their own audacity. I don't mean that they don't occasionally fall into the trap of other people's opinions. The hustlers I know, they're human, and they face the same insecurities as the rest of us. But when push comes to shove, they don't overthink it or debate it. They just put their heads down and get back to work. That's what hustle means to me. It means that you're willing to work for it, whatever it is, whatever you want, and you don't assume anyone is going to give it to you, but you know it can be yours. Society tends to raise boys to go after what they want and tends to raise girls to go after the boys. I'm here to tell you that it doesn't matter what society thinks about you or your dreams. Heck, it doesn't matter what your family, your closest friends, or your spouse think about your dreams either. All that really matters is how badly you want those dreams and what you're willing to do to make them happen. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich said, Well-behaved women seldom make history, and there are hundreds of years of evidence to back her up. Sojourner Truth, Susan B. Anthony the suffragettes, Marie Curie, Malala Yousafzai, Oprah, Beyonce. Not one of these women put up with the expectations placed on them by society or the time period they were born into. None of them downplayed their gifts, resources, or the access they were given. Those women and so many others like them lived into their God-given strengths and talents regardless of what the world thought of them, sometimes against almost impossible odds and life-threatening oppression. Are you a hustler? Me too. Do you secretly want to be, but you're afraid of what other people might think or say? I've been there. For many women, the weight of other people's opinions will be too big a burden to carry. They won't be able to step outside the safety net because they're too scared. 
But that's not us. We're willing to go after it. We're willing to be audacious and we're willing to take it on because the chance to live into our full potential is worth any backlash that comes our way. Some say good girls don't hustle. Well, I'm okay with that. I care more about changing the world than I do about its opinion of me.